Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are pleased to have another repeat customer and guest with uh, Dr. Amalia Cochran, who in this capacity on Behind the Knife is the president of the Association of the Surgical Education, ASC, and she's joined by Mo Shabahong, who's also the chair of the Graduate of Surgical Education Committee for the ASC. To the both of you, welcome to BTK. Thank you. It's nice to be back. So all of our listeners know that by now, they kind of get the same general feel. And just for those of you who haven't uh, heard the, some of the back episodes, and Mo, this is your first time being on there, what we'd like to start off yeah. with is tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from, where did you train in addition to ASC? You know, what do you do during your normal uh, kind of day job uh, in addition yeah. to that? So uh, why don't we start with uh, Amalia? So I um, refer to myself as an expatriate Texan. I grew up in Texas, went to both undergraduate and medical school at Texas A&M, came out to Utah for my general surgery training, thinking that was going to be a six-year proposition, and it's extended far beyond six years. I did a burning critical care fellowship at uh, Shriners UTMB and then promptly came back to Utah, and I've been on faculty here since 2005. In terms of what my job looks like, my role at Utah, um, busy clinical burn surgeon, we have a very busy burn unit here. We're the only burn unit for the entire Intermountain West. And then in addition to that, I'm our vice chair of education and professionalism for the Department of Surgery here at the university. Fantastic. Mo, what about yourself? Give us a little bit of background about yourself. I uh, did my residency at Georgetown. I was um, uh, I did my medical school and residency at Georgetown. I then did a surgical oncology fellowship at the University of Miami. I then went to um, Scott and White Clinic in Temple, Texas, for eight years, where I practiced, and I also became program director. And that's where my education career started. Um, I have been at Geisinger in Pennsylvania for seven years now, seven and a half years, I should say. And uh, I've continued being program director here. I just finished my 12th year of being program director um, and uh, in totality. And I've, uh, I've also um, become the chair of the Geisinger Surgery Institute. Uh, so right now I'm both an administrator and educator. Um, and uh, um, so those are the two roles I have. Yeah, thank you both for that introduction. Uh, so... For those of us like myself who are surgical residents uh, who have a personal stake in the way surgical education is run, uh, we would actually be very curious to hear, how did you end up where you are? How did you rise through the ranks to get to be leaders of the Association of Surgical Education? I actually got involved with ASE as a resident. Um, I was the very first resident to do the Surgery Education Research Fellowship, uh, which now frequently includes residents in the cohort, but became involved in the organization at the same time. I was really fortunate that one of my mentors, Dr. Lee Neumeyer, was uh, one of the executive officers and then president of the ASE while I was in my training. And what I learned from her regarding ascension within the ASE is if you can, so our committee structure is an open committee structure. 
And if you are someone who is junior or who is new to an organization, that really works to your benefit. Because basically, if you show up and you work hard and you participate and you bring ideas and you do things, it makes it very easy to get noticed and to move up within an organization. And so I think that's really always has been and it remains one of the strengths of the ASE is that open committee structure. So if you are, for example, at Surgery Education Week or if you're going to the American College of Surgeons and you are an ASE member, find out when our committees are meeting and you know feel free to show up at a committee meeting even if you're not a member yet, we will welcome you. Or find out who the chair is of a committee that aligns with your interests and reach out to them and say, hey, I'd really like to join your committee. And again, show up and do the work and you will be embraced and promoted within this organization. Speaking of chairs of committees, uh, Dr. Shabahong, you're chair of the Graduate Surgical Education Committee. Can you tell us a little bit more about what goes on inside that committee? Sure. Uh, the Graduate Surgical Education Committee has been in existence now for uh, several years. I, I want to say it says six or seven years, maybe a little bit more. It really is, um, it, whereas the ASC seemed to concentrate a lot on undergraduate medical education, this committee was set up in order to uh, pay attention to graduate surgical education. Right now, we are um, uh, we are working on multiple different things. Uh, there are four uh, major initiatives. One is how do we get the younger generation involved um, in the surgical education? One, uh, the second one is uh, a postgraduate assessment of our graduates of residency programs. Are they uh, serving the function that uh, are they doing what the programs train them to do? The third initiative is looking at the role of vice chairs of surgery. These roles, there are more and more of them around the country, and they seem uh, to at times not be exactly the same. So we have a subcommittee that's working on that. And maybe the most important one is we have a subcommittee uh, working on the wellness curricula and perceptions of both learners and faculty uh, on the issue of wellness. What does it mean uh, to have a wellness curricula? So those are our four initiatives for the next uh, year and a half, I think. Um, but this committee has been working on different uh, issues pertaining to uh, graduate surgical education. So with regards to all of these things, there's a lot of different societies out there and you know with time and everything that's involved i guess one of the things that goes uh, that we want to kind of focus on is you know why should you said you want to increase the next generation and do that mo so w what does the asc have to offer you know we talked to a lot of residents and medical students and everything what are what are some of the things that the asc why they should get involved or that the society can do for them i think the surgical educators of the future will have to have some extra training, just being interested may not be sufficient in the, in the next generation of surgical educators. I think the ASC uh, plays a fundamental role in, in, in creating some pathways for the future surgical educators. I want to reinforce what Mo just said about that. Um, you know, I was one of the early prototypes to come out of residency training and say, my academic thing is that I'm a surgical educator. 
Um, at that point in time, there were not a lot of people who were identifying in that way. And we still continue to struggle with, you know, what does that mean? And what does that look like for promotion and tenure in academic institutions? I think we're starting to get some of that figured out, but it's been a long time coming. And one of the real advantages of the ASC is that we have helped surgical education sort of grow up as a scholarly and academic paradigm that actually gets credibility within our academic departments. I'd like to dive further into this point about the next generation uh, for surgical residency. Um, Let's start with you, Dr. Cochran. What do you plan or envision for the future of surgery residency? Well, this is something that I know there are lots of discussions going on, uh, both at the board level and within the Association of Program Directors in Surgery and within the Association for Surgical Education. And one of the things that is almost assuredly coming down the pipeline is the idea of using entrustable professional activities, which we're starting to use some at the medical student level, as a way to move residents forward in their training. This is going to be something that is going to take a lot of time and a lot of thought, and it will completely upend how we are used to training our residents because it will move from a time and service model to a competency and activity model, which means that, you know, instead of just having to do three months on the hepatobiliary service, if you have met all of the competencies, you may only be there for six weeks or five weeks. Or you may be there for 10 weeks, (laughs) may vary wildly from one resident to another. Um, But the idea of us being able to do competency-based training has a lot of downstream implications in many ways as far as credentialing of residents to be able to bill for different activities um, and just really being able to provide people who are hiring folks straight out of training with a more robust picture of who their new hire, your recently graduated trainee really is and what they are capable of doing. So that's a fascinating concept, this idea that you're going to judge residents based on competency. um, And that competency rather than time and service drives how far and how quickly the resident advances. Uh, A part of that implies that there are solid metrics to measure how residents are doing. Do you know how this fits all into that picture? Uh, Will, you have just asked the question that is sort of the the elephant that's in the corner still right now is how do we establish what competency looks like and, you know, how do we determine that competency in my operating room looks the same as it does in Dr. Steele's operating room looks the same as it does in Dr. Shabahong's operating room. And so that's really going to, I think, be the sticky wicket and the hardest part of developing the idea of EPAs and how we implement them, particularly for surgery. When you're just dealing with knowledge-based specialties, it's a little bit more clear cut. But when you're dealing with a specialty like surgery, where you have to have all of the knowledge and you have to be able to do all of the things, it's much more challenging to put a clear metric around what competency looks like. Let's take it one step further when you talk about competency. Part of the thing that always comes up in my operative room and within dealing with fellows and residents is how do we manage expectations in terms of what they're going to do, how they're going to get trained, whether it be in a particular case focused on an element, but also give the necessary feedback, I, I guess, is to the both of you. And uh, the feedback always seems to be a problem. A couple of questions for you to address. 
Number one, how do you, you get your staff and fellow uh, fellow providers to get them to do it? Number two, how do you get them to do meaningful type evaluations or feedback? Because it's hard to tell some people that, hey, listen, you, you, you're not ready. You're not be able to go along. And then what can we do on the receiving end to make sure that the residents won't just blow that off and they can actually listen and go from there? The most important feedback that the residents in today's age of higher sets of regulations and uh, so on uh, need to know is am I competent? Am I competent to be autonomous when I leave this residency? So I think there's been a lot of work done around the country on the issue of evaluating residents and giving them feedback case by case on the level of autonomy they've had. And it's not always saying that you had a great deal of autonomy, but really allowing them to know how much they had. So I, I think that, that uh, uh, we need simple tools, uh, which basically tells the resident, you know, in this case, this is the level of autonomy you had. One thing we're trying out is really putting the complexity of the case and then putting, in addition, the level of autonomy the resident had. And the whole idea being in our six-month reviews going over that and, and giving them feedback on their technical skills and whether they were at what level of autonomy they're at, which each level of complexity of cases. That way they have a mirror and they can assess them. They know where they, they um, are relative to uh, their level of autonomy as viewed by the, by the attending physicians. So we are basically doing this with asking each resident to have at least 50 evaluations per six month period, which because of the simplicity of the, of the tool, that's basically a telephone-based tool, the residents for the most part can fulfill that. And to bring this back to a more basic question about autonomy, are you generally defining autonomy as, um, say, that resident, the moment he or she graduates, will be able to operate independently? Or are you using a different definition for autonomous? No, I think the definition that you mentioned, for, for, at least from my opinion, that is the definition. And again, knowing that in today's age, you're not going to come out being able to do everyone operation autonomously because we are in an age of much more specialization and, and a lot more fellowships. So I'm not expecting that my resident can come out and necessarily do a Whipple procedure or a uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm repair autonomously necessarily. If they are at a reasonable level of autonomy, I, I may be satisfied at this point because if they were going to be doing those cases, they will be get, seeking a fellowship. Amalia, any other thoughts about that? No, this, this is definitely mostly in Mo's wheelhouse since he is active as a program director. Um, like he mentioned, there are some really great tools that have been developed out there. Uh, the Zwish scale, OpTrust that the University of Michigan group has been working on is one that specifically addresses EPAs uh, the, um, as, as how the residents are evaluated. So I, I think that having quick and easy tools for people is going to be something that's going to be far more readily available than what we've had in the past. Because as y'all know, in the past, it's been, you have to go log on to do an on the fly type thing, which if you're going to do that, it's either going to be something really great or really catastrophic, um, because otherwise you're not going to take the time for it. And then you do the, the residence evaluation at the end of their four week or eight week or 12 week rotation. And 
you know, that's not going to capture the same level of detail that we need to be able to figure out where people are in their actual progression, like these quick feedback tools are able to capture. And before we move on, one final question. How do you think the ACGME's recent increase in the case volume requirement prior to graduation plays into all this? I think it's a, you know, it's, it's, um, I do think the time had come for the numbers to change. Um, yeah, it, it's just technically it's a little frustrating because it still hasn't changed on their website. Or um, and some of the detailed numbers, I am concerned. Um, you know, when you uh, break down breast cases into so many of this and so many of that, I am a little concerned about that. But I think the increase in numbers, I, I'm supportive of it. I think those are numbers that should be achievable. I absolutely agree with Mo. Um, And, you know, I'm going to bring my own bias to the table here as well and mention that, you know, burn is required now in general surgery instead of optional, uh, which we're very excited to be back in the fold. Um, I'm at an institution where we never left the fold, but I know there are other places where that's not true. Um, You know, the ACGME increasing requirements for case volumes particularly makes sense in light of all of the the noise that's out there. And I refer to it as noise because I understand there have been a lot of survey-based data with fellowship directors and people saying, oh, yeah, residents aren't, you know, my fellows aren't what they used to be. They're not getting the same training. And, you know, I've always worried about how we deliver that message to our trainees and what it means to them, because if you are consistently hearing, well, you're not going to be adequately trained when you get done, your take home message when you get done is, well, I'm not adequately trained. And, you know, we've seen that trend to 80 percent of residents in many programs doing fellowships. And um, a lot of them are doing that in some ways strictly as a response to a lack of self-efficacy, because many of them are probably adequately trained to go out and be really good, really safe general surgeons. Let's touch base on that a little bit more. So one of the things based on, you know, historically plastic surgery and then vascular surgery, now colorectal is thinking about going to it. How do you guys view the future of general surgery when you consider the, or what role does general surgery play in uh, these four plus two or five plus one or anything uh, from a program directors or just from an academic and an educational standpoint? What are your thoughts? You know, my, my philosophy is interesting. As a program director, I used to have a very different philosophy than I do right now. Early on in my, in my program director career, I used to be a big believer that, you know, the first few years, yeah, general surgery is an important part of the residency, but really the fourth and fifth year really should be many fellowships in colorectal and surgical oncology and trauma critical care. My, my views have changed dramatically, and the, re- and, and the reason is that I think the bread and butter general surgery, the confidence that a surgeon has in doing those cases is going to translate as they go into fellowship or advanced training of any sort or into practices. So I think that, um, I think that, what, and, and obviously our definitions of general surgery will differ, but I think that the bread and butter general surgery is a fundamental part of our training. Um, and whatever form our trainings take, um, which at this point we're still in the traditional five-year model, uh, I would think that that is a fundamental part. So what I've done is actually increase the amount of general surgery that our senior residents do because, again, 
of, of the need for them to feel comfortable coming out. The number one thing we hear from people over and over again is, I'm not comfortable. And I think that that's an issue that um, in my days as an older person, it really did not occur because not necessarily the trainings were that much better, I think. It was just that there was more autonomy, uh, you know, whether you did a case in the middle of the night and then called the attending and so on. I'm not, and not that that was necessarily the best thing to do, but it did give you confidence. And I do think that that's why general surgery uh, is a bread and butter general surgery is very fundamental to training. I, again, would tend to echo what Mo is saying on this topic. Um, you know, as much as I may have over the years bemoaned the fact that I was doing Whipple's my last 10 weeks of my residency when I knew I was going to a burn fellowship, um, the reality is that for the first several years that I was out when I was taking trauma and some acute care surgery call, it was indispensable to me to have some of those technical skills and some of those abilities that you just aren't going to get if you foreshorten your general surgery training. And in somewhere, you know, something like plastics, okay, yes, absolutely, I see the point. But for a lot of us that are going into these areas that have traditionally been um, subsidiaries of general surgery, having that confidence, having those skill sets, being able to think about, well, this isn't exactly what I did, but what would I do, you know, based on what I learned on my transplant rotation, what would I do with this awful looking bile duct right now? Thank you both for those uh, wise words there. Uh, at this point, I'd like to move on to our tips and tricks section. Here, we normally ask about how you might approach a or, or manage a, a various challenging scenarios. Uh, but I think we have a unique opportunity here where both of you are devoted to advancing surgical education and dealing with residents who are often uh, in challenging spots. So I'd like to ask, what is your approach to residents who are struggling in some way, be it knowledge base, technical, or personal issues? Amalia, I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> So what I will do, yeah, no, that's fine. I, what I'll do is I will take the part of this that deals with residents who are maybe having professionalism or personal issues, um, because that's a lot more in the wheelhouse of even what I'm doing right now. And, you know, one of the things is that we have to be mindful of the fact that, um, you know, we are human beings, our residents and our students are human beings. It can be really easy to, I think, slip into a mindset, especially because, you know, gossip happens and you start hearing, well, you know, Billy Bob really did an awful job on his last couple of rotations. And so you'll hear that in the graduate education committee meeting. And so Billy Bob comes onto your service and he gets in there and you start talking to him. And what you find out is that, you know, his dad, who lives five states away, has leukemia. Or that, you know, a family member who he's really close to just died or he's struggling with being in a new city that's far away from his support community. Um, there are a lot of different things that I think it's really easy for us to just, you know, expect people to sort of man or woman up and do the job. And we forget that their personal lives and our personal lives really can impact our performance. We see it with our own colleagues and we'll see it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it'll be just they seem like they're detached or disinterested. Sometimes it'll be that that resident or even that faculty peer who um, 
has always been really great to work with. And all of a sudden they're snapping at all the nurses in the OR and they're, you know, being awful when they're returning pages at night, they're yelling at the residents, they're doing all of these things that are completely out of character. And anytime that that kind of stuff starts happening at any level, I automatically uh, go to my default thought process of this person either has a really bad case of burnout or they've got other stressors and we need to figure out ways to help them manage them. We've actually gone so far in our residency as to allow residents to take some personal leave. Obviously, that gets limited by what the, the board, how much time the board will let you have off. Um, but we have actually gone so far as to encourage residents to take leave for personal reasons if that's what they need to have. Um, because if they can't come in and they can't learn and they can't take care of the patients effectively, there's really not any major value in them being there. And all it does is set you up for a conflict. And it also puts them in a position where, again, the reputational thing just keeps getting worse and worse and gives them a bigger hole to deal, dig out of. You know, I think sometimes uh, we make um, difficulties something that's abnormal versus actually bringing more normalcy to it. Um, you know, when I first meet with the first-year residents uh, at the beginning of their first year, I usually will tell them, you will hit a wall in the next five years. The, 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 the chances that you're going to go through the five years and be smiling every day it, it, it's close to, it's low. Um, and, and, and that you are going to hit a wall. This is, and the question, the question that we should prepare you for is how do you deal with it when you hit the wall? And how, um, who are your support systems? And how can we as a faculty and, and co-residents be your support system? And, and also train people to be resilient and, and give them the tools of, the, to be resilient. But really, at the same time, remind them that we all hit walls. So what is your advice to the other staff who, when you meet, you're like, I don't think this resident is going to make it. And how do you make that differentiation between those who what they need is time away or support or anything and the others who we seem to progress along when maybe we should have identified them at an earlier stage and had them look for other outlets or other specialties or something that would actually help them out versus just pushing them along. And then you're faced with a resident and maybe their PGY4 or PGY5 year where you can say, man, I, I don't know if they're going to be able to do this. And as Amalia said earlier, not only do we need to be good doctors and, uh, you know, in good taking care of patients, there's a certain percent of residents out there that may not be able to operate. What do you do in those situations? It's really one of the most vexing things. And, you know, when, uh, when you even have one, who you, you, you push along, um, the consequences of that for your program are heavy uh, because it does diminish the confidence of the faculty and residents in, in the program. I, I, you know, what, we, what we do is every three months we get together with the faculty and we go over every residence. Obviously, we have a moderate, moderate-sized program, so we can do that. But, but the purpose of that is to see if something, is it a blip in the radar and is it going to go away? Because if it does, then we, we want to be able to help those residents who truly are, don't belong in the, in the, in the profession um, a way out sooner than their third year or especially their fourth year. You, you would pray that you never have a fourth or fifth year um, who uh, has gone through the ranks 
because um, we did actually a few years ago, and it's a very challenging problem. It really, uh, I think it was, and, and honestly, we paid a price for that a few years back, uh, afterwards. And what about those residents in whom you notice a technical deficiency? Apart from the standard measures of, say, prescribing more time in the simulation lab, what are some creative measures you two use to advance their technical expertise? SimLab is definitely like the the one-stop shop that I think everyone tends to use, although making sure that that time is both targeted and proctored is a really key and a key component of making sure that that works. You can't just say, you've got to go to the sim lab for an extra three hours this week because that's not going to benefit them. It's identifying specifically where their deficiencies are, finding people who can proctor them as they work on those deficiencies and targeting that practice time to work specifically on those things. And then also making sure that as they get opportunities in the OR to do more of, you know, a patobiliary anastomosis or a um, bowel anastomosis or laparoscopic procedures, whatever their Achilles heel is, actively seeking ways to get them those experiences, which is hard when you're trying to manage a residency program because it may mean a little bit of shuffling people around um, to accommodate the needs of your learner who needs some remediation. But we also have that obligation to try and establish if we can really turn them into the surgeon that we want them to be. And and I would say, I should say that I I think the, the technical challenges of training someone are actually smaller than the personality um, and other issues, the cognitive stuff. Um, Just because um, obviously, as we said, with simulation, with even if you, need to give them extra time or retain them for a year, um, they're fixable, uh, whereas some of the cognitive stuff are much harder to fix. Well, that's fantastic. It's always one of the most difficult situations, and I agree with you. It's bad for morale when you have somebody that's in their PGY-5 or, you know, maybe in some cases their PGY-7 or 8 year when they come out of the lab that you have to be faced with that situation to decide what to do. So, that's a uh, very valuable, valuable insight. Okay, as all of our listeners know, we'd like to end everything. And Amal, you're going to have to change up some of your answers. But uh, Mo, <laughs> welcome to the final five. And this is for us to get to know you a little bit more personally. So number one, we'll start with Amalia. What do you play music-wise in the operating room? Um, my OR music roles are no rap, no metal, no Britney Spears. <laughs> all of which I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> So almost anything, but no rap, no metal, no Britney Spears. <laughs> Mo? I'd usually allow um, uh, the residents and nurses to choose, but if I was going to choose, I, I, I like you know, the hits, the top hits, pop music. That's awesome. So Dr. Cochran, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room? Um, I am a serial half marathoner. Uh, that's one of, probably one of my biggest hobbies is that I am a runner. And, uh, I think last year I ran 10 half marathons. Wow. That's fantastic. And no, no full form, no full marathons for you. I have, I do not want to run a full marathon. That's the really interesting plot twist here. <laughs> right. Any particular reason? Um, 
there's a difference in the level of commitment that's required. You can run half marathons and they're hard and you have to stay on top of your training and really be disciplined. But the level of discipline and structure and order that is required to train for a full marathon is something that rather than get me excited, it gets me anxious. And so that's really the basis for my decision. (laughs) Fair enough. I like it. For me, also, running has been kind of the main hobby. Uh, I don't have as much discipline as Amalia does, but, but that's been my main hobby. Number three, tell me about a favorite trip or vacation that you've been on recently. Your timing is excellent on this. So it was sort of a mini vacation about a week ago. Actually, a week ago today, I just got back from uh, a trip up to Montana to participate in Cowgirl Yogatography. Um, yes, that's a real thing. It's a retreat that is based around photo workshops and yoga and hanging out on a ranch in a beautiful part of Montana. And, uh, it was a really great five days away. I had a very, uh, nice, um, uh, cruise, uh, from, uh, England all the way down to Spain, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was uh, that was over the summer, and that was uh, pretty magical. It was uh, especially going to the uh, coast uh, coast of Normandy and the D-Day beaches and so on was quite amazing. Wow. Number four, Dr. Cochran, what would you be doing if not medicine? My option B, if I didn't get into medical school, was that I was going to go to divinity school. And Dr. Chabong. I was going to become a history professor. I bet those are some of the more intriguing answers you guys have gotten to that one. (laughs) It's good stuff. Uh, Let's close out. Wow. If you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? What would you do? Wow. Um, Thinking about it through the retrospectoscope, I think the biggest thing is... um, Parts of residency were really hard for me. I, I am of the vintage where we trained, you know, before there were work hour rules. Um, and there were times that I, in hindsight, was very clearly depressed and terribly burned out. Um, I know that now at the time, you know, when you're in the thick of it and you haven't seen daylight in two months while you're in the SICU, you don't know that. Um, but I think maybe knowing up front to be a little bit kinder and more gentle with myself than I probably was at times would have been a good thing. For me, I think uh, it's the same advice I would uh, give today, which is look at life as a series of formative evaluations, that nothing is that, um, nothing is as high stakes as you think, and and just take every day and learn from every experience and and move on, uh, and, and don't get stuck in uh any of it uh, for too long. That's fantastic. I think this podcast episode has been full of a lot of wise words. So we appreciate both of you for spending this afternoon with us. Thank you all for inviting us to participate. It's really been fun. Absolutely. And we encourage all of our residents to uh, be able to take a look at this. For one of you, can you tell the residents, is there a website or something that we can have them direct to to find out a little bit more about the ASC? Absolutely. It's surgicaleducation.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining us on BTK. And for all the listeners out there, if you want to find out more about it, 
please visit that website. Take care. Until next time, dominate the day.